Open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. When I was in my early 20s, I worked for a brokerage firm, and I was studying to take a Series 7 exam. That license would allow me to place investment trades of, of many sorts, stocks and bonds and mutual funds. I studied for weeks in preparation. I read the entire textbook that they gave me cover to cover. I took countless practice tests. I even took a class on how to teach me to pass the dreaded Series 7 exam. I did everything I could to retain and remember as much information as possible. So after a good night's sleep, I drove to the testing center. That exam is four hours long, which is too long. And there's a mandatory break in the middle. And so at that mandatory break, I treated myself to a nice sushi lunch. Um, When I began the second session, there seemed to be a lot of questions covering information that I knew I had heard before. I'm certain that I had read somewhere before, but when it came down to it, I just could not remember that information. A few minutes after I submitted my exam, the testing monitor handed me my test back. My results were a 70. 70. Now, that will get you through freshman English, but it will not get you through the Series 7. A 72 is considered passing. I failed. I failed by two points. On one hand, I was embarrassed. On the other hand, I was just frustrated. I had to take it again. Now, the SEC required, not the SEC like you're thinking of yesterday, but the Securities and Exchange Commission requires a one-month wait until you retake the test. So I took it a month later to the date, and as I waited the second time to see my results, I was trembling on the inside, probably also on the outside. And um, she handed me my exam results, and would you believe I scored a 107 Well, my actual test result was a 79. But remember, I said you only need a 72 to pass. And so I'd actually beat the mark by seven whole points. So in my book, it's it's 107, yeah. When it comes to, uh, Jamie doesn't like that math either, but it makes perfect sense to me. When it comes to the Christian life, I have been through many of the same tests again and again. There are, have been repeated tests reminding me, teaching me how the Lord is always faithful. There have been trials that I have walked through that have revealed that I often forget the truths that I first learned in Scripture. And even still, there are questions that I don't immediately recall the answers to as I face them. The thing is, in many tests of the Christian life, it's not that we need new answers but to remember the truths we already know. Spiritual growth is often being reminded of the same things again and again, and thereby in being reminded we grow in our faith. Often we have this sort of spiritual amnesia as we forget the things that we've learned. Uh, There's a Puritan named Thomas Gouge who once wrote this. How unspeakably strange it is that Christians can forget God who does so much to be remembered. What truth or promise of God do you need to be reminded of this morning? 
When the long-awaited deliverance of God's people from Egypt took longer than expected, it seemed they were overcome with spiritual amnesia. The Israelites forgot who the Lord was, the promises that he had made, and who they were as his people. These truths they had learned earlier, they now need to be reminded of once again. And out of his loving kindness, God repeated his words of promise, reminding both Moses and the people of his redemptive plan. So the lesson that we learn in Exodus chapter 6 is how we can remember the promises of God as his redeemed people, as we do three things. One, look to the promises of God, verses 1 through 8. Second, listen to the promises of God, verses 9 through 13. And finally, live in light of the promises of God, verses 14 through 30. Let me invite you to stand to your feet as we read from God's holy and inerrant word. I'm just going to be reading right now verses, oh, let's say 1 through 8. Exodus chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Would you be seated? What a text. What a text. The first way we remember the promises of God is to look to the promises of God. There are few places in the Old Testament that are this bright with the promises of who God is and what he has done for his people. Like the same sun which rises in the morning reminding us of God's faithfulness, these verses are incredibly bright with reminders to Moses to get his eyes off of his situation and back on the Lord. God adjusts our eyes with his promises. Our passage begins as God responds to the questions that Moses asked at the end of chapter 4. Now the passage begins. Now we will see what God will do. The strong arm of the Lord will do more than, uh, 
just Pharaoh letting the people of God go. Rather, it's said that when it's all said and done, Pharaoh will be the one driving out the people of God out of the land of Egypt. Why? Because there's a greater cause than the strength of Pharaoh that will drive them out. It will be none, nothing less than the strong hand of the Lord that will perform this saving act. Last week, we heard Pharaoh hiss out the question, who is the Lord? Now we see the Lord remind Moses exactly who he is. Verses 2 through 5 are the first specific response from God to Pharaoh's question, who is Yahweh? And by the end of this encounter, Pharaoh and Moses, the Israelites and the Egyptians, will all know exactly who Yahweh is. If you'll notice, at the beginning and in the middle and at the end of this section we just read are the remarkable words, I am the Lord. God reteaches the lesson he'd already taught Moses, speaking slowly, speaking clearly as possible of his identity. As a devotional practice this week, I just wrote out the things that I saw this text teaching us who the Lord was, and what the Lord had promised to do. I counted 15 different truths in this passage. Perhaps this week you would also like to do something like that and see if your faith doesn't grow, even in just writing out who the Lord is and what he has said he would do. We'll summarize verses 6 through 12 by focusing on three promises. We'll group these together and focus on three promises that God makes to his people. First, The promise of redemption, verse 6. God says it louder for the people in the back, in case you've forgotten. He gives this promise of redemption. He is the God who has heard the groaning of his people. He remembers his covenant. He says three specific things. One, I will bring you out. Two, I will deliver you. And third, I will redeem you. Now, in the English, this is written... In the future tense, but in the Hebrew, it's written in the past tense, as though God is speaking with absolute certainty about these events that are soon to come to pass. God will redeem his people, and based nothing on their performance, nothing that they have done, but based on who he is, he is the God of redemption. Second, the promise of adoption. Now, this promise of adoption focuses on the present situation of the Israelites, his chosen and beloved people who are in the midst of suffering. And in this promise of adoption, God says two things. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. He will be the father of Abraham's descendants. They will be his sons and daughters forever. The scripture repeats this almost 50 times so that we wouldn't forget it. And notice there's, a, there's an effect to this great cause. There's a result to this promise. You shall know that I am the Lord your God. You shall know. At the heart of this self-revelation, at the heart of God's great act of salvation, is that we would be his people. That he would be our God that we would know him, the promise of adoption. The third is a promise of a place. 
The last promise looks forward to the promised land. I will bring you to the land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you. But not yet. They're in this place between already and not yet. They would be for a number of years still. Why? Because there were lessons that the Israelites needed to learn before God gave them a place. We will look at some of those lessons uh, in the new year. God teaching them to trust him, not in a place, to trust him, not in a leader, to trust him and him alone. And then notice there is again these words in verse 8, I am the Lord. It's as if God signs his very name to these promises. It is the Lord himself who promises redemption, the Lord himself who promises adoption, and the Lord who promises a place. Brothers and sisters, our promise-making God is a promise-keeping God. Who he has been in ages past is who he will be throughout endless ages. What he has spoken, he will surely bring to completion. The truths that he has said were strong enough for the saints of old to trust in, and they're strong enough for us to build our lives upon today. In the coming weeks, we're going to see the Lord perform salvation on behalf of his people. That's going to happen. But as we do, let us look to how God has kept his ultimate promise and how Jesus has performed salvation on our behalf through his birth, through his life through his death, and through his resurrection. In Christ, the I will promises of God become it is finished. Christ has fulfilled God's promise of redemption so that it's in Jesus that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, Ephesians 1.5. Christ has fulfilled God's promise of adoption, as he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, Ephesians 2.7. Christ has fulfilled God's promise of a place. And the treasure of heaven, Jesus himself is preparing a place for us in the kingdom even right now. John 14.3 tells us this is so. So how do we remember the promises of God? We fix our eyes on them. We keep our Bibles open in our lap as we navigate this life. So we see that as we look at God's promises, he adjusts our vision to behold who he is through the light of his word. That's what we're doing even now, why we gather week by week, opening God's word, allowing us to rehearse, recall, remember the promises of God. We keep looking at the things we already know Standing in them firm to the end. The truth of who God is and how he has redeemed us in his son Jesus Christ. Look to the promises of God. The next practice we find in our text is to listen to the promises of God. Verses 9 through 12. Now as we arrive at verse 9, it may seem once like, like someone has changed the radio station in our car in the middle of our favorite song. Don't ever do that, by the way. But we might expect at the end of a wonderful passage like this, reminding Moses and the Israelites of who God is and what he will do, that they would return to the Lord, that we might see a worship service break out like we saw at the end of chapter 4. Instead, 
they close their ears to God's word. And so does Moses the Great. Listen to verses 9 through 12. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke. Those are massive words. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So as Moses is going to tell the people all that God had said, perhaps a hint of confidence has returned. There was no burning bush this time, but God had spoken to him. Yet as he sings the same song, second verse, the people don't sing along. Instead, they mute the word of God. Moses records two reasons why they will not listen. First, because their spirit is broken. And instead of echoing the song of David, a broken heart and a contrite spirit you will not deny, they allow their broken spirit to push them away from God. God's design in our suffering is that it would turn us to Him, not push us away from Him. Yet we find the Israelites' spirit is so broken they turn away from the Lord. The second reason they don't listen is because of their harsh slavery. Now, when Moses came telling the people of God's promise of deliverance, they heard the words of God. They saw the signs of God. They believed and they worshipped. This time, they don't even listen because of how poor their conditions have become. Things have gone from bad to worse. And so they close their ears and turn their back on the Lord. After this one-way conversation... The Lord recommissions Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let his people go. And Moses also hits mute on the voice of God. He chimes in with his own two reasons that he doesn't want to listen. On one hand, he thinks that Pharaoh won't listen to him. The people won't, so surely Pharaoh won't either. And you can feel the frustration of Moses. He has such a burden for these people. He sees them suffering Things are far worse than before. He tells the Lord, no one's going to listen to him now. On the other hand, he's a man of uncircumcised lips. And that phrase points us back to chapter 3 when he says, I can't talk well. I literally can't do this. What we have there is an echo of Isaiah 6 where the prophet receives a commission from God to go. And he replies, woe is me for I am a man of unclean Lips. So it may be that Moses feels unworthy for the task. He's too sinful to be a messenger of God. But in the end, there would be no stopping the unstoppable plan of the Lord. This phrase, but the Lord spoke, is pregnant with encouragement. You see, people may have tuned their ear away from the Lord. Moses may have turned his ear from God's command, but what the Lord speaks 
what the Lord decrees, what the Lord says will come to pass, regardless of how people feel about it, it will happen. And so soon, and very soon, beginning next week, we will see these things begin to unfold. For today, I want to apply this passage to us even right now. Are there truths about God or promises from God that you have muted in your heart? That you have tuned your ear away from? Perhaps a situation has you so broken hearted you find it difficult to listen to God's word. Maybe you feel so beaten down by life or suffering or sin that God's voice is a faint whisper to you. Christian, remember today that God sees you, God remembers you, God hears you, and God knows you. He promises to you, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's his word to us in Hebrews 13, 5. God has pledged himself to you. He has committed himself to you out of his covenantal love. And to our friends who are uh, here and not yet born again, perhaps you've been silencing the voice of God and you are so weary from the load of sin that you carry, but he continues to call to you. He promises to you, if you confess your sin and turn away from them, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He promises, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Those are God's promises to sinners. And so perhaps even now, through the word of his gospel, you hear his voice call you to believe on him, to be redeemed, to be adopted as a son and daughter of a good father so that you might be given a place with him forever in heaven. Listen to the promises of God. And then the final practice we draw from our text is to live in light of the promises of God. So in talking through this passage with Jamie this week, as soon as she got to the genealogy, she stopped and she looked up and said, this is a strange place for a genealogy. We didn't even read it, but you see from verses 14 all the way to 25, there is an extended genealogy. We won't read it in its entirety, but I want to tell you why it's here. The point of many genealogies in Scripture is to reflect the fulfillment of God's great commission in Genesis 1.28, to be fruitful and multiply. So every time we see a list of names, that's God keeping his word in the great commission he's given to his people to fill the earth, to subdue it. The point of this genealogy specifically is to establish Aaron as a worthy partner in the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, particularly in his role as Moses' mouthpiece, to show that Moses and Aaron are both true Israelites. This genealogy is specific. It's not even complete. It just talks about the oldest three brothers of the tribes of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Now, this is important because Scripture is proving to us that Moses and Aaron are sons of Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob, through the tribe specifically of Levi. Aaron, of course, will start the whole Levitical priesthood. We'll see that, oh, and someday. 
Um, but why is it right here? Why break out into a genealogy in the middle of all of this? I'm so glad you asked. I think if you look at, Genesis, at uh, Exodus 3 and Exodus 6, side by side, you'll see exactly what God is doing here. In Exodus 3, when Moses is speaking to God at the burning bush, God commissions Moses. He says, I can't do it. And then what does God tell him? Who's coming? Aaron. Okay, what's happening here? Uh, God's speaking to Moses. He's saying, I can't do it. And instead of reintroducing Aaron, here we see Aaron filled out a little bit. We see who Aaron is and why he is both numbered with the people of God and qualified to lead them. So what happens is, verse 13 introduces Aaron into the narrative. The genealogy explains Aaron's identity. And then verses 26 and 27 help us interpret the genealogy by saying that the people we're looking at in this story, these are the Aaron and Moses we know from Scripture. And that notice Aaron's name is first in their birth, birth order, giving him all of the emphasis. This is God telling us who Aaron is, and by extension, as his brother, who Moses is. I'm going to read verses 26 and 27. These are the Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. And so we have the promise of deliverance. We have the proof that these men who are leading are qualified to be leading. And so, well, so what's the problem then? There's a problem with the heart of the Israelites and still with the heart of Moses. Pick up with me in verse 28. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? If we're honest, we're probably really tired of hearing Moses argue at this point. Anybody? Just tired of hearing Moses argue and whine with God about his call and this plan of redemption. Where that's true, let us remember how patient the Lord has been with us as we also have argued with him and whined about his plans. Moses repeats personal information he's already told us in verses 9 through 13. He's uncertain he's the man for the job. It's remarkable that even in a chapter so packed, chock full of the identity of God and his promises that the last word of the chapter 6 is me. Me. What a terrible place to end. Moses is not looking to the promises of God. He has his eyes fixed on himself. Moses is not listening to the promise of God. He's drowning in self-pity. Moses is not living in light of the promises of God. All he sees is the darkness of the situation that surrounds him. The Israelites are in bondage, and there is nothing that Moses can do about it. And this is exactly the point. Moses cannot do anything about it. It would take God and God alone to deliver his people. If Moses would have Rode on his donkey from day one, 
So there's a new sheriff in town, delivered his people and taking them out. The people would have been prone to trust in Moses. But Moses has been looked, made to look like a fool in their eyes. He has proven he cannot do what he believes that God wants him to do. Moses couldn't do it. He was not the deliverer. Redemption would take what we saw in verse 1. The strong hand of the Lord, Yahweh, who is mighty to save. So as we conclude our brief study of Exodus 6, I want to encourage us to live as a church family in the good of God's promises, in the light of God's word. Often like Moses, our eyes are not looking to the promises of God. We have our eyes fixed on ourselves. Like Moses, we don't listen to the words of God and his promises. Instead, we listen to the tireless noise of our world. Like Moses, we don't live in light of God's promises because all we see is the darkness of our situation. We face many things in life and there's nothing we can do about them. And that is the point. We cannot save ourselves. It takes God and God alone to deliver us. And so we wait on the Lord to return. We wait on the Lord, sure that he will fulfill all of his promises. We wait with faith and hope. Spurgeon once said, We shall not grow weary of waiting upon God if we remember how long and how graciously he once waited for us. And so let us wait on the Lord, looking, listening, living in the good of all of his promises, remembering the promises of God. Let's pray that he'll be our help. Father, we are so grateful for your word. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in and through it, making yourself known, promising good things to us as your people. And I pray in your great grace that you would give us faith, hope, trust, love, that we would look to you in your great deliverance. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.